the Reading Corner today. I'm so pleased to be welcoming back Phil Earl, this time for a solo performance. Um, Phil had huge success last year with his novel, uh, When the Sky Falls. And today we're talking about uh, a second book with Anderson Press, While the Storm Rages. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this book. It's as moving uh, as the previous novel, and there's a lot for us to explore. I really wanted to start, actually, Phil, by asking whether the two books were conceived of together or whether one came out of the other, because, of course, there are lots of connections between them. I would love, Nikki, to be able to say, yes, of course, it was all part of this wonderful brain that I have, uh, but it wasn't, of course. The reason that this second book exists at all is down to my editor, Charlie Shepard at Anderson Press. I didn't have a plan for book two. I'd only signed a a one-book deal with Anderson. That's the way I kind of like working at the moment. And um, it was as we were editing When the Sky Falls, Charlie had put a note on one of the early chapters saying, Phil, just be careful that you don't put too many children in this story with pets, because during World War II, there weren't a lot of animals around. And I literally had no idea what she was talking about. And so it had me scampering away to the internet where I found out all about what became known as the Great Animal Massacre. And what that basically means is that in September of 1939, as war broke out, the government sent a 30-page booklet to every uh, household in the country called Air Raid Precautions, Volume 10, uh, Precautions for Animals, I think it was called. And basically what it said was, uh, it's not going to be safe for your pets. There's going to be bombs falling, there'll be gas, rubble, fire, explosions. There's not going to be enough food for humans, never mind animals. So unless you can evacuate your animals in the same way that you would your children, our suggestion to you as a government is that you have them put to sleep. And um, as a result of that booklet going out, incredibly, in 30 days, in in September 1939, 750,000 animals were put to sleep. Which, way, if, if it's to believe, the stats are to believe that's about double the number of British soldiers that died in the entirety of the war. You know, mm. we twice as many animals in one calendar month. And my brain working as it is, as soon as I read that, it just felt like a huge opportunity. Mm. It's, it's my favourite part of any journey, Nikki, with a book is, is when a, an idea presents itself. And I got goosebumps when, when, when I read about that because all I ever do when I have an idea is ask the question, what if? What if there was a boy who said no? Mm-hmm. What if there was a boy who'd, you know, a month before this book had arrived at his house, this boy, Noah, 11 years old, had packed his dad off to war and as his dad left, he made his dad a solemn promise to keep the family dog safe. And his dad says, you keep wind safe for me, son, and, and I'll be all right. I'll come back safe. You know, walk out, touch me if you and your mum and the dog are safe. And so Noah internalises that and takes it on as his kind of life's mission in a way. Fast forward on four weeks, the booklet arrives and mum says, Noah, we're going to have to do what the government says. And Noah, being the kind of kid he is, says, oh, I'm not going to do that. So behind his mum's back, with the help of his best mate, Clem, and with uh, the, the school bully, Big Col, they, they decide that they're going to save as many animals as they can. And they, uh, they nick Noah's dad's boat. His dad's got a tug, a real tug, a rusty old bathtub of a boat called Queen Maudie, named after his mum to try and placate her. 
and they nick it and sail it from Wapping down the Thames because, uh, again, this is where history played a really integral part in that during the Second World War, there was uh, a duchess called Nina Douglas Hamilton and she uh, was a, an early anti-vivisectionist and, and animal protester, you know, cruelty to animal protester. And when, when war broke out, she, she basically let it be known that people could bring their animals to her and she would look after them. She wouldn't see any, a single animal put down. So Noah and his mates decide that they're going to sail their way down to her estate on his dad's stolen boat. So there's a couple of dogs, a couple of kittens, a 20-foot python and a donkey in a sun hat called Samson. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the adventure, really. Can can they get there? Can can they sail to the promised land? I guess it won't escape notice that the python is called Delilah and the donkey is called Samson. I expect you're having a bit of fun there. Aye, aye, absolutely. Yeah, it just I didn't. I never set out to plan with you know symbols or with themes in mind, but it it just kind of I started just riffing on it. Really, you know the the fact that the boy was going to steal a boat, he had to be called Noah. From that point on, you know, as you say, you've got Samson and Delilah, and then I won't spoil it, but the, the two kittens that joined the journey, they've they've got rather biblical names as well. So, yeah, yeah try to have yeah. a bit of fun with it. Yeah. It's a story that could be quite dark, yeah. but actually it's got a real sense of adventure. Definitely. You're also right with, you know, that it's a recipe for humour as well, having all those animals on a boat. <laughs> yeah it's it's true I mean I know I've always had like if I've got any kind of reputation as a writer it's of writing gritty stuff but but I think that even the grittiest of stuff I've read I've written has, has always got a, a seam of humour running through it because that's just me and then um, this felt like a departure because I did absolutely want it to be an adventure story there's, there's a few books that influenced it more than others but I mean Catherine Rundell's The Good Thieves I read once to myself a few years ago and then I shared it with my daughter Elsie at bedtime and I just think you know Rooftoppers is a wonderful book as well I don't know Catherine's not capable of writing a dull book but um it really gave me a bug that thing of can I do that could I write an adventure story I'd never tried to write like her she's a completely unique voice but I, I wanted to, to test myself you know this is book number 22 in my career and I wanted to write some I didn't just want to rewrite When the Sky Falls mm -hmm. do you know what I mean because mm -hmm. actually that came along, that book was like it was for a lot of reasons. You know, I was at a difficult point in my life. I was finding life quite difficult. I had some really key relationships in my life break down and I didn't realise what I was doing at the time, but I was writing about that. But it didn't leave me as much scope for humour. And so I really felt like I wanted not just to trot out the same book. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so, I, so I thought about The Good Thieves. I thought about Robert Westall as well, in particular, Machine mm. Gunners. There's no greater children's adventure than the ones where you get the adults out the way early on and let the kids save the day. Do you know what mm. I mean? Absolutely. The story starts in Wapping um, in East London, and it, it felt to me like you had walked the walk around there. Uh, is, that, is it a place that you knew well or you had to get to know well to write this story? I couldn't go there physically because I wrote it. This was my lockdown book, really, I guess. But I did do an awful lot of research and I watched a lot of documentaries and old YouTube footage and even, even re researching into how locks open and close, which isn't my idea of fun, believe it or not. But it had to feel believable, doesn't it? It has Absolutely. to feel like, like it's a real place. It certainly worked for me. But I think also in terms of the period, 
Uh, the things that also chimed as really true is the language of the dialogue. And it suddenly struck me, you know, my grandmother used to say laugh, not toilet. Yeah. And there are other things in there. And, you know, it kind of reminds you, yes, how language has changed. So tell me a little bit about how you managed to tap into the the dialogue of the day. Uh, was that through film and documentary? Yeah, it is quite a lot. I do tend to, for me, whatever research I do does tend to be very visual because I'm not a great reader. <laughs> That's not a very, very cool thing to admit when you're a writer, but I struggle. Honestly, I struggle with reading. Give me a 500-page book on the East End during World War II, and I would struggle with it even though I'm interested in the subject. But give me a documentary. Give me some YouTube footage. You know, give me a well-made TV thing that I can really, uh, you know, delve into and 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 uh, absorb it all. That that's what excites me. Alongside writing dialogue, I'm not a descriptive writer. I'm a storyteller. Do you know what I mean? And what I'm interested in is is writing things that feel authentic and believable. And that comes from theatre for me. It doesn't come from reading. It comes from going to the theatre as a kid. And not Shakespeare, do you know what I mean? That wasn't my thing. I lived in Hull, grew up in Hull, and we had a, we had a place called Hull Truck Theatre, and it was the creative director there was a guy called John Godber, a really big, no-nonsense Yorkshireman. And he was writing about stuff that I could relate to. He was, you know, he wasn't writing about Narnia or, you know, big houses with wardrobes and that take you to a fantasy land. He was, he was writing about nightclub bouncers and teachers and rugby league players and hairdressers and and being a whole lad and although I'm not as working class as I'd like to be you know it, it, it spoke to me and I just I absolutely buried myself in those plays and the dialogue was incredible the rhythm the authenticity that excites me as a writer and so there's nothing more exciting when I'm writing dialogue I'm, I'm acting it in my head I'm not strolling around the room like an idiot mm -hmm. you know doing it to myself but I, I really think about rhythm and I really think about is that really how someone would speak and what makes it all the more remarkable then is how the words that you do use can still conjure up those visual images you're mm. not describing them visually as much and yet a few well-chosen words can still take you to that place imaginatively in your head it's yeah. amazing I'd like to, I think, perhaps hear a little bit of the story so we can get a flavour of the writing and pick up some more of the themes from there. Of course. I thought I'd read chapter five. So basically Noah has made this pledge to his dad. Dad's marched off to war and mum said, you're being evacuated soon and you're not allowed to take the dog with you. And, and this is what happens next. But she can't stay here, Noah yelled breaking from mum's grasp. She has to come with me. She has to. He didn't mean to be angry or rude, but all he could think of was dad, of the promise he'd made about mum and Win. What sort of son would he be if he let dad down within a week? Dad had said it, hadn't he? As long as Noah kept mum and Win safe, then he'd be safe too. Bulletproof. So this news, well, it was terrible. As bad as it could be. I'm sorry, Noah. I wish Wynne could go with you too, to keep you out of trouble, if nothing else, but it's just not possible. Think about how many children are going to be leaving the city. How much of a responsibility that is for the families taking them in. They can't take in every cat, dog and goldfish too. It just wouldn't be fair. Fair? 
Well, it's not fair leaving Winnie either, is it? Why is it all right for her to be abandoned here, to be blown up and not me? Because she's just a dog's son. It seemed like a perfectly reasonable thing to say as far as mum was concerned. Not to me, she's not. Or to dad. To us, she's as important as anyone else. She's part of this family. The only one who don't give a monkeys about her is you. No, that's not what? True? Fair? It's both of those things, mum. I walk her, don't I? I chop up her food and check her for fleas and ticks and I comb her out and everything. Although Noah received many of his traits from his dad, there was one that his mum had clearly passed on to him. The inability to walk away from an argument. And who does it while you're at school, eh? She roared back. Who cleans up the sick when she vomits up what she's eaten? While you and your father are swanning about daydreaming. Who apologises to Rita next door when Wynne uses her garden as a lav or combs the streets every time Wynne gets through the gate and goes missing? She went missing? When? If mum was trying to reassure Noah about the idea of leaving Wynne behind with her, then she was doing a lousy job. More times than you can count, Noah, in every weather possible. And every time she runs, I go after her and I don't stop until I find her and bring her home. So don't stand there and tell me I don't look after her. Noah stormed from the room and out the back door, signing behind him with venom, only stopping when he realised he didn't have his shadow with him. Win, he yelled through the window. There was no way he was stepping foot back inside. Come on, girl, come on. He didn't have a lead, but he knew he didn't need it. She might run away from mum, but she'd never do the same to him. It didn't take Wynne long to pull her way to freedom, adding to the scratches on the door with such ferocity that mum had no choice but to set her free. Be back in an hour, she yelled at both dog and son, though if either of them heard, they didn't reply. By the time mum poked her head through the back door, the pair of them were nowhere to be seen. I want to pick up a little bit on this relationship between the mother and the boy, Hmm. and how, as an adult reading it, you feel for this mother who's going to lose her son the next day. He's going to be sent away and evacuated. And I can feel what that must be like to her and how she's sort of carrying on. But to make her likeable for the child reader so that we don't just see her as the villain of the piece that must have been something you had to think about yeah absolutely you know advice from editors is always so welcome (laughs) and and the first book I wrote I managed to get it in front of uh, a lady called Callie Poplack who now runs HarperCollins children's books and the book I was writing at the time you know it had a a villainous nemesis sort of character who was very one-dimensional and she said to me, and it was brilliant advice, she said, you know, of course you need a nemesis, of course you need a, you know, an anti-hero or a bad guy in a book, but they have to be believable, they have to be well-rounded. You know, if you think about the great villains in, in modern literature, a lot of them have got some substance to them. Look at what they did recently with Cruella de Vil. The new Disney Cruella film is absolute genius. And, and, and it's it's... It's so important that every character has a degree of believability and three-dimensional qualities, you know, because otherwise they just fall flat on their face. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, you want the kids to side with, with Noah, but you've got to understand how mum feels. Yeah. And one of the ways in which you do that, although when you're just reading it, you're not necessarily aware, but you do give us a few insights that are from Maudie's perspective. We get a little bit of her 
describing looking after the dog when mm. Noah and his father have gone out to work. So we do understand what it's like from her point of view. I think that comes from personal experience as well. That I know mm. that often it's the adults that do the, the donkey work when it comes to pets. Tell me a little bit about when a python came into the story, because I could see that, you know, a lot of people are going to have their pets put down. Mainly, I would mm. imagine dogs, cats, rabbits yeah. at the time. Can't imagine there'd be that many pet pythons no. back in the day. No. So how did that come about? In the same way that most of our plot points come about, it, simply by riding the roller coaster, really. I don't plan. I don't plot. I have a basic, okay, this is what it could be about, starting point. Sometimes I have the end, but actually I didn't have the end this time. And off I go. And, and so at the start of chapter two, Big Cole appears. And Big Cole, I think, I mean, to me, Big Cole is an absolute doff of the cap or a, a, a wink of the eye to Robert Westall. He's, he's, he's like those kids in, like Chazzy McGill in, in Machine Gunners. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Those kids who are rough around the edges, but with hearts of gold. And the first time you meet Big Cole, the first words, first words that come out of his mouth is your dog's a Nazi. Mm. You know, just because Clem, the sausage dog he's talking about, is a Dachshund, which is a clearly German, so he must be a Nazi. So when Big Cole appeared on the page, it became very clear that he could be the kind of counterpoint to Noah and Clem, who were best mates. He could be the, per- the third person that will go on the run with them that will add a little bit of conflict because they don't get on. He basically bullies his way onto the boat. And I knew he needed an animal to, to earn his way onto the boat. And I thought long and hard about what, what it could be. I thought for a while about a tarantula, for example. And then I just settled on a, I settled on a snake. It seemed to fit his character very well. You know, if we're going to apply a bit of Pullman-esque theory to it, it seemed like a good demon for, for Big Cole to have. But I was lucky. There's, there's a really brilliant children's writer, called Dr. Jess French, who's a, who's, she's a TV, TV vet and she writes children's books and a lovely human being. So she gave me a lot of really sound advice about things that this snake would and wouldn't be able to do and would be able to survive and wouldn't be able to survive. So Because yeah, there's a just, moment where the snake is left on the boat with the, the animals that they're rescuing with their menagerie yeah. and there's a sort of heart-in-the-mouth moment. I mean, a Dachshund is probably edible size for a python. Yeah, if that python got hungry enough, I'm reliably told he could have swallowed that Dachshund whole. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, interestingly, I'm writing a third book now, which I guess is a it's going to be a rough trilogy of of kind of animal blitz stories. And and actually the animals are going to be the central characters. They're gonna they're gonna talk to each other. So again, I'm trying to do something similar but different. Mm. But even though the animals can't talk to each other in this book and while the storm rages, I wanted them to feel very much fleshed out, like they had their own personalities. Mm. And and that's not always an easy thing to do, but I guess the experience I had of writing Adonis was such an amazing one that that it felt like a nice foundation to build from, I think. Mm. You mentioned earlier um, Lady Nina Douglas mm. Hamilton, mm. Um, who obviously was a really remarkable human being, anti-vivisectionist, probably before her time or certainly early on when, when oh, people yeah, were thinking about that. Did people actually take their pets to her? I believe they did. Yeah, I believe they did. I mean, the, the, without giving any sort of spoilers away, you know, the, the, the problem that the children have in the book is one of geography. You know, they don't quite get their geography right. But yet it's my understanding 
that that people did absolutely used her that she ran this huge estate. You know, she was a remarkable woman. You know, in in World War One when so many animals were requisitioned for the war effort, especially horses. You know, as we'll know from from Michael Morpurgo's books. You know, she she staunchly opposed that. There's actually a precious little about her that you can find, apart from a few brief things. But she was extraordinary. You know, she ended up in court an, an awful lot, which which for a, a, a distant member of the royal family was really quite a thing mm. at the time. Yes, and I think she walked the walk as well as talked the talk uh, because she she died younger than she needed to because right. she wouldn't have surgery because things had been tried out on animals and yeah. Absolutely. For 46, I think she died. So not not long at all. And actually, she played in the first draft of the book. She played a much bigger part. Obviously, there has to be some jeopardy on this. Uh, it can't just be a nice trip down the river to no. to Windsor. So there are some real villains in the piece and it helps mm. that Python's a pretty mm. valuable animal. Without spoiling too much, just tell us about some of the jeopardy that happens on this journey. Well, some of the jeopardy is self-inflicted. You know, what the character arc with Noah that I wanted to sort of get across is the fact that he's a deeply impetuous young man, brilliant and caring and massive of heart and quick of wit and quick of brain, that he clearly engages in activities before he's thought through very clearly. So the sheer notion that, that a 12-year-old lad could, could nick his dad's boat and safely sail it down the Thames for starters is pure folly. So some of the jeopardy is self-inflicted but yeah you know again it was it it was influenced a lot by the rundell by by good thieves there were some absolutely corking good villains in that and and by reading dirty smith people like cruella deville you know the without giving the game away again you know there's a couple of of rather uh, ragamuffin type adults that they meet along the way who become really rather wide-eyed and greedy at the sight of of Delilah the snake, for example. And and I wanted them as well to have a little bit of a, without being pretentious, I wanted it to have a little bit of a Dickensian feel that. Mm. And again, that's not really for me reading the books. I read Great Expectations at school and liked it, didn't love it, liked it. But but watching things like the... the just, I always feel really daft talking about films when I'm a writer, but watching Oliver when I was a kid, you know, Oliver Reed as Bill Sykes put the fear of God into me in a way that I think, apart from the child catcher, no, I mean, child catcher wasn't even as scary as Bill Sykes. Do you know what I mean? In Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. No, because he's not real. No. Whereas yeah. Bill Sykes, that's a real character. You, oh. you can feel he existed somewhere. I mean, and Oliver, Oliver Reed just fills the screen, doesn't he, when he plays him. And I really wanted to convey, when I was writing about old Jim and, and this other character, I really wanted them to have that, that feeling of, of Bill Sykes. I also had a, a really early thought was they needed to find at some point an adult that would help them. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, the character of Dennis comes in and, and without saying too much about him. I really wanted to talk about war from a different perspective in that because throughout the book, Noah is under no illusions at all that his dad is doing the right thing and the just thing because that's what his dad's told him. And when you're 12, mostly you believe what your parents tell you. And when they meet Dennis on the road or on the riverbank on the way to Windsor, this young man who's living out in the in the woods, living wild, living a feral life really because he's not terrified of war, but he simply says, you know, I, I can't pull the trigger. 
they can put me in a uniform, give me a rifle, but they'll be carting me back the day after because the second I come across a German, I can't shoot them because I have no truck mm. with them. And so, yeah, it, 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 there's jeopardy in other ways there as well. Can they trust that man? Can can Noah learn a little bit from him as well? So I, I wanted to make the jeopardy varied. And even, you know, the, the role of the Spitfire becomes quite key as well. So mm. I wanted to chuck in various different bits. For, for me, it's... I love books that accelerate. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I think that's why I read quite a bit of crime and I desperately wanted to write something here that had you breathless by the end. Do you know what I mean? You keep that feeling that things can't turn out well mm. right to the very last moment of mm. this story. Thank so thank you for that. I don't think it's quite as, as ruthless as it was with When the Sky Falls, because that's literally, it's not even the last sentence, it's like the last three words, I think. But yeah, it, 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 it did, and it took a lot of work. I know that you wrote this book in lockdown, mm. and obviously since then, so much that happens early on in the book feels very prescient as... Um, Noah's dad is explaining his reasons for going off to fight. Noah says, what What if, as in, what if you don't come back? And he says, mm. what if hasn't happened yet? And so there's no point giving it space in your brain. All I can think about is, is if I don't fight, then how long will it be till our country isn't ours anymore? Mm. Until we're taking orders from people who only know hate, who will have to make folk feel one thing alone, and that's mm. fear. No matter what the fear, no matter what the cost. Yeah. Because yeah. if you don't, well, everything you know and love and recognise will suddenly look completely different. Yeah. And you yeah. can't help read that now with yeah. a different war in mind. Well, there's um, so many, there's so many, in the, you know, like, you know, Brexit's been so oppressive and it's created that much fear and resentment amongst people and divided us such a lot. And then lockdown came along. And uh, I don't think it's a coincidence. I wrote an adventure story. It was it was escapism, but it's nice. It's always nice to be late to be able to layer things in there that feel prescient or feel mm. you know, timely. It's been such a pleasure talking to you again, Phil, about while the storm rages, and you know, thank you for writing it another cracking book for us. Uh, thank you. It's always lovely to chat to you, mate. In the reading corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Anderson Press. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.